Welcome to Cultivating Curiosity, where we get down and dirty with the experts on all the ways science and agriculture touch our lives, from what we eat to how we live. I'm Emily Davenport. And I'm Jordan Powers. And we're from the University of Georgia's College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences. We are here with Carla Schwann, Assistant Professor and Extension Food Safety Specialist. Carla, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to connect. Absolutely. We are really excited for this episode, especially ahead of the very quickly approaching holiday season. Before we dive into some of the holiday-related food safety questions, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in food safety. I major in food science and technology, so I'm originally from Brazil, and major in food science and technology. And during my undergrad, I wanted to do an internship to learn more which area I wanted to go. And food microbiology, especially bacteria, always fascinated me. So it goes back to when I was a little kid and I had an infection with E. coli and I got really, really sick. I was in the hospital for a month and it turned out I had shigatoxin producing E. coli, which is a strain of bacteria that produces toxin in your intestines and it can lead to severe consequences. One of them shutting down your kidneys. So I was in dialysis and doctors didn't think I was going to make it. And usually when you have this type of bacteria, they do not give you antibiotics because if the bacteria is resistant, then likely you're going to die from it. But in last resource, they give you the antibiotics antibiotic because that's the last thing they can do. So they gave gave me the antibiotics and here I am. So the bacteria thankfully was not resistant and I made it. And since then I was about 12 years old. I couldn't even pronounce the name of the bacteria. Back then my doctor would tell me and I'll be like, wow, this is a mouthful. I, I cannot even say that name. And just so fascinating on how something that you cannot see with a naked eye can make you so sick. And so when I started food science technology, one of the areas that I could do an internship was food microbiology. And I loved my professor. I loved the classes, this, you know, food micro 101. I approached him and said, hey, can I, you know, intern in your lab and just learn more about this and see if I like it? And that's how it all started. And I did an internship, worked with him with bacteria. And then I had the opportunity to come to the U.S. to do a science without borders program that the Brazilian government had at the time and did one year of an internship at Kansas State University with Dr. Randall Phoebus working in his lab and he really guided me on more the advanced technologies on food safety and equipment that we didn't have access back home. So then I was able to be exposed for one year in his lab and learn a lot of different things. So I went back to Brazil to graduate with my undergraduate degree and he had recently got a, a USDA grant to work on shigatoxin producing E. coli, the same bacteria that nearly killed me. And he emailed me saying, hey, I, I have this grant. Would you like to come and do your master's with me? And I'm like, wow, yeah, of course. I will, you know, I was super excited. So I came back to the U.S. and then did my master's with him investigating E. coli. It was not intentional, you know, because I had the infection when I was 12. And here I am working with this bacteria, identifying interventions for the beef industry. It kind of came full circle, not intentionally, but I think I I can tell my story and tell people how and why food safety is so important because I'm a living example of something that really went wrong when I ate a burger back then when I was a kid and it really affected me for my whole life. We always in food safety talk about short-term disease, which is you have your diarrhea, vomiting, headache, maybe a low-grade fever, things like that. And then you have long-term disease or chronic disease that you can develop that we have seen research on. And one of the examples is irritable bowel syndrome. And within that category, you have Crohn's disease as well. So then you fast forward, I'm about 
28 years old and I started getting really sick again and the doctors diagnosed me here in the U.S. with Crohn's disease and even though we cannot exactly pinpoint that specific event because it was so intense and I had toxin formation in my intestine and my kidneys were shutting down. It was such an intense event and it changed my gut microbiome. Now I have a chronic disease that I develop later on and so the doctors think that had an effect on it but of course we cannot say 100% that that's the only thing that caused it but a contributing factor potentially on top of having the genetics for it and some environmental stressors. I like to give this example because we talk about short-term illness, uh, the immediate symptoms that you can see and then long-term disease is hard to track but people sometimes forget and don't see it and now you have a chronic disease that potentially came from a foodborne illness that was preventable and now you have this disease for the rest of your life. Crohn's disease specifically is an autoimmune disease that there's no cure for it so being on infusions and doctor's appointments and you know the cost of that associated with a foodborne illness too is so high. There's just so many facets to it so I always like to give this example and share with people because it's real and it can happen to anyone and probably everybody has already had experienced a foodborne illness but just didn't realize but it's preventable so that's the great thing it's preventable we can work together to prevent things like that. I think it's probably easy for a lot of people who have maybe experienced that short-term illness right those couple hours to a couple days where you're regretting some decisions but then you get past it and you don't think about it again and for a lot of people I think that's the way that it goes so it's it's really fascinating to hear you talk about that long-term repercussion that might not even happen for you know your case another more than a decade more than a decade Um, yes but it's it's out there and it's real so that makes me really excited to dive into some of our topics today So turning to the, like I mentioned earlier, very quickly approaching holidays, we do know that many people love to make homemade gifts around the holidays, whether it's homemade vanilla, infused oils, homemade caramels, etc. What are some considerations that gift givers should have in mind if they go that route? I think the first thing I would say, depending on the recipe, if it's a recipe that could pose more risk, and I'm referring to here infused oils, definitely find a validated, a tested recipe that somebody has validated validated in their lab because then you know that the procedures you're going to follow are safe and even though it's a higher risk product you can feel confident that you are following the steps and you're gifting someone with something that is safe so for example the concern with infused oils is that you are creating an anaerobic environment so there's no oxygen because of the oil and you are adding uh, maybe garlic or herbs or uh, different things that are low acid meaning there's not enough natural acid in those foods that could prevent the growth of bacteria and in this case we are talking specifically about Clostridium botulinum which is a bacteria that produces a toxin that causes a disease called botulism so botulism poisoning it can be a deadly disease and so we are mostly worried in the case of infused oils with botulism and how it could, if the spore is present, germinate in the right conditions and then produce that toxin. So the infused oil piece, people sometimes assume that just because you're adding garlic or you're adding herbs, because it's oil, you can just leave it out at room temperature and it will be fine. So by doing that without following a validated, attested recipe, you are really creating a perfect storm of conditions for that bacteria to produce a toxin. So you have no oxygen, you have a low acid food that you are adding into that oil and uh, you're leaving at room temperature. So those conditions are perfect for Clostridium botulinum to germinate if the spore is present to germinate and then produce that toxin. However, there is a safe way of doing that. So we have validated recipes. We have research that was done to understand before you even add the garlic or you add the herbs that you should be adding some acid and letting that acid infuse into the garlic.
garlic or into the herbs before you add that into your oil. So we have a publication on that and steps on how you can do that safely. So you can feel confident that if you want to do that, number one is going to be safe and it also can stay in a counter and is a piece of decoration, right, that people like to show. Okay. And it looks beautiful. <laughs> so you want to display that. And there is a safe way of doing that. So we have an extension publication that we talk about that and the steps on how much acid and what is the thickness of the garlic and how many herbs you can put and things like that. We'll link to that and the Newswire article in the show notes so that our yeah. listeners can awesome. go, go that route if they'd like <laughs> yeah. to do some infused oils safely. That's right. Awesome. Well, between the holidays and then right after the Super Bowl, for those who celebrate, um, <laughs> we're definitely in the season of large gatherings. So how can party hosts or maybe people who are attending and bringing the dish take steps to keep guests safe? There are several measures that we can take in order to prevent foodborne illness and contamination. So first, I would say when you are preparing your dish at home, making sure the counters are clean, that you have cleaned them and you wash your hands and you have a clean surface to work with. And if you have raw meats and raw vegetables, separating them, so having separate cutting boards, or if you only have one cutting board, preparing the vegetable first that is not going to be cooked so there is no intervention really to kill anything if it was cross-contaminated with the meat so you're preparing your vegetable first washing really well your cutting board and then you prepare your meat that is raw and is going to be cooked so there is an intervention step there to take care of any bacteria if they were present so that's one thing when you are cooking your meats making sure you're cooking it to the correct temperature internal temperature using a food thermometer storing the foods in the refrigerator and making sure they are below 40 Fahrenheit and when you're transporting your food to the party that you're going to, utilizing containers that will keep your food either cold or hot. So if your food is cold, you can use ice packs to make sure that it's padded around the food and then transporting it to the place that you are serving it. Making sure that when you arrive to the party and you're serving food, or if you're hosting the party, you're serving food, that you keep hot foods hot and cold foods cold. So for hot foods, you want to keep it above 140 Fahrenheit. And for cold foods, you want to keep it below 40 Fahrenheit. Also, being aware and making sure that your guests are aware if you have any allergens. So right now, FDA declares nine big allergens, so we call the big nine. And obviously, that's for regulation purposes. Being in your house, you're not going to be regulated by the FDA. (laughs) So you don't necessarily have to do all the guidelines that they offer. But I highly encourage that if you have allergens, that you make sure you tell people uh, what dishes have what allergens, because the last thing you want is somebody with an allergy coming in and eating a food and then having an anaphylactic reaction to it. They'll ruin your party and maybe that friend will never come over again because (laughs) (laughs) there's a risk. There is a risk. So labeling your allergens, sometimes also when you're serving and there's a big gathering of people using single-use items. So people are not mixing maybe the spoons they're using in different dishes and cross-contaminating that way. Also hand-washing, maybe before you start a party, you can encourage the guests to hand-washing and having stations available. So bathrooms or in the kitchen and having soap and paper towels available for the guests to wash their hands and hand sanitizers as well throughout the space. are some tips when you are preparing or bringing food or serving food but also when the party is wrapping up and you you have leftovers of course you don't want to waste food so making sure that you kind of keep a timeline on when that food was put out so usually we recommend that if the food has been left out for two hours or more you should throw it away but if the temperature for example in the summertime is above 90 Fahrenheit then only one hour because bacteria multiply really fast when it's a little bit more warm and cozy for them to multiply (laughs) 
So that's the general recommendation for storage. And then let's say next day or in the next two days, you want to reheat that food and you want to eat that food that was left over from the party, making sure that you are reheating it to a safe temperature and using a thermometer to make sure that the internal temperature of that food has reached at least 165 Fahrenheit. And that should be good. Something else that I also like to mention is sometimes we have recalls. So if there's a contamination, USDA or FDA or even a volunteer recall, from the company, they put a recall, recalling your product due to contamination of X, Y, or Z. So being aware that foods that maybe you have at home, store at home, or that you might have served were recall, so you can let your guests know, or even in the front end, if you know that something that you have in your pantry has been recalled, you can avoid serving that. And there is a great app that USDA has, it's called Food Keeper, that you can get alerts and follow recalls in different items. So it's not only USDA regulated food products, but also FDA. So it's a really great resource that people can have and check periodically or even set up alerts to receive information. Yeah, that's fantastic. We yeah. will link to that in the show notes. Definitely. Awesome. I didn't I know love, that existed. <laughs> I, know. I love that they've made that accessible to people. Yeah, and it's free. Yeah, mm, that's great. And I appreciate all the great tips that you shared. And if our listeners want to know more about food safety and keeping their guests safe, we will link to another episode that we did about food science and safety with Manpreet Singh, who's department head of food science and technology. Those are some really incredible tips to keep guests safe. Like we talked about earlier, it's really easy to forget the basics or to rush through the basics. I know that in my family, we've been guilty of going, oops, we forgot to thaw X, Y, Z in time. And then we're debating, do we take the easy route of just leaving it on the counter while we go run errands and come back? Or do we do it the right way and maybe postpone that meal another day or cold water thaw, which we've learned about. I know that I have gotten a little stricter in my household (laughs) about how we do these things after talking to people like Manpreet and yourself and reading all of this research. One, I will admit that I'm still guilty of uh, a little bit. Emily and I are both very avid bakers and we know that eating raw cookie dough is supposed to be a no-no. I say supposed to because I'm still learning. It's commonly thought that the issue is eggs, raw egg, but we know that there's another culprit and it's the flour. Can you give us the scoop on why we should avoid eating raw flour before it's been baked? Yes, and I love that you said raw flour. And the key word here is raw because at the store, there's two different types of flours you can buy. You can buy just regular general flour that is not heat treated, but it is also heat treated flour that you can use for raw cookie dough. And so there is a safe way of making raw cookie dough. So using heat treated flour and using pasteurized eggs, because as you said, salmonella and eggs, it goes back to when the food industry is developing a process or looking at the food safety plan that they have for a specific product, they think about what is the intended use of that product, right? And so in this specific case, flour is not intended to be eaten raw, generally. So the food safety plan is matching that intended to use piece that we have when we do a risk analysis or develop a food safety plan. And so because flour is not to be intended to be eaten raw, there is less precautions taken at the industry side of things. And so when people are consuming 
doing it at home, you're going to have an intervention step, you're going to bake it, or you're going to cook it, or you're going to make a dish that is going to be cooked. And so you're covered from that side. But then if you're using general flour that the intention is not to be eaten raw, and you're eating it raw, you're misusing it for the purpose that is serving, right? And that's kind of where the problem comes in. There is heat-treated flour at the grocery store, but you can also do that at home. We have some guidelines that we offer, and through research, again, we are able to determine how much time and what is the thickness you should spread that flour in a baking sheet and for how many minutes you should bake that at what temperature. And we have also publication on that that explains step-by-step how you can heat-treat flour at home. You can make safe raw cookie dough, and you can confidently eat it. Something else that we sometimes forget that we use flour for is for when kids are making crafts and they're making play-doh at home with raw flour and so that's something else that when you're handling that raw flour with kids especially which is a population that is mostly susceptible to foodborne illness due to their immune system being still formed also want to make sure that if you're using flour for crafts at home with kids or with anyone you heat treat that flour before you use it the recommendation for heat treating flour at home is that you're going to preheat your oven to 400 Fahrenheit and then you're going to spread about three-fourths inches deep or less in a baking sheet of flour and you're going to bake it for five minutes but we have specific steps and you don't have to memorize this for me saying that right now so <laughs> you can look that publication up and do it yourself at home we will absolutely link to that in the show notes and what an easy way so i can get out of my shame of nibbling <laughs> yeah. raw cookie dough occasionally <laughs> keep myself safe i mean those are those are those moments i'm like i grew up with homemade play-doh i've grown up eating raw cookie dough mm-hmm. and i've gotten knock on wood very lucky but there's an easy fix here if right. people take the time to access all of these amazing resources out there to do the things that we want to do but do them in a safer in a manner safer. so yeah and it's flour you think about it there's no really moisture so the water activity of that product is super super low and recently we have been learning different pathogens can survive they don't necessarily grow in flour but they can survive and just hang it there and then once you add water and you add eggs and you add whatever the other ingredients are now you're making a really good party for that bacteria that is just hanging there now you have water you have nutrients and then it's able to grow and multiply and so that's when the problem becomes real i didn't think about that but that's what microorganisms are good at doing is surviving for a long time (laughs) if they have to they're just lingering waiting (laughs) yeah Now you can get yourself some pasteurized eggs, Jordan, and make a whole bowl of raw cookie dough if exactly. you want to. Exactly. This is a game changer, Guilt Carla. Free. I am so excited. <laughs> I even have a tofu cookie dough recipe. I can skip the oh, eggs wow. entirely. Oh, all right. And now do it with safe flour and be yeah. completely set you to You might go. have to okay. share that recipe with us. There we go. <laughs> yeah. I will. It's, it's a good one. All right. Well, another thing that people are probably doing a lot of right now is putting up food from their gardens because it's fall and everybody's reaping the spoils of their gardens if they're so lucky. My garden was not that lucky, but uh, (laughs) maybe for some other people. Right. (laughs) So how do people make sure they stay safe when preserving homegrown goods? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think something that I like to start off by saying that quality in is quality out. So people think that, oh, I want to, you know, my tomatoes are going bad. I'm going to just harvest them really quick and I'm going to can them and they're going to be good. And yeah, if you follow validated recipe in the steps, they're probably 
we're going to be fine. But there is no magic happening when you are preserving that food, when you are, for example, in this instance, canning. So make sure that you always start with good quality produce. Even the slightest indication of mold growing in that tomato or in, you know, whatever fruit you're using or vegetable, you should discard that and avoid using that for, for canning because quality in is quality out and probably a little bit even less quality out because you're applying heat and you're applying treatment to that food. So it's going to be safe, but the color might have changed, the texture might have changed. So that's the first thing that I talk about using good quality produce when you are preserving. Specifically for canning, canning using a validated recipe. There is other food preservation methods that we also have guidelines and validated recipes, but for the sake of time today, focusing on canning because I think through the National Center of Home Food Preservation, right now, the high volume of questions that we are getting is canning tomatoes. And I think tomatoes are wrapping up and everybody wants to quickly extend their shelf life by canning. And so I'm going to be focusing on that for, for the episode. But making sure that you have a validated tested recipe, and I cannot emphasize that enough. And so Sometimes when people think about, oh, it's just a recipe, what could be that is so fancy about that recipe? And the research and the time, the equipment, the expertise that goes behind developing a recipe in the lab, it's immense. There's just a lot that goes behind a recipe. And so sometimes you see recipes on different social media and they look great and the photos are beautiful. And when you start making it, then people call me and they say, well, I found this recipe. I don't know. I have a weird feeling. Do you think it's safe? Can I still eat it? Well, unfortunately... After the fact, I cannot really tell you because just by looking at a recipe, there is no way I can tell that recipe is safe. So there are several things that we measure in the lab to make sure that the steps that we give the consumer are steps that they're going to follow and they're going to be safe. And specifically for canning, again, it goes back to the infused oils, the same concept. For canning, the high risk, the bacteria that we are mostly worried about is Clostridium botulina, again, botulism. And so for canning, what you're really doing, you are preserving that produce, your, let's say, tomatoes you're putting that tomato in your jar and you did either a raw pack or a hot pack and now you are you know you close your jar and you are processing that depending on the recipe let's say you had a recipe that called for citric acid or lemon juice or vinegar whatever the recipe calls for and it allows you to process that tomato using a boiling water canner so once you do that basically what happens the air that is inside the jar is driven out because of the heat and then that air is driven out you have the lead on and once that jar is cooling during the cooling process that vacuum seal is formed preventing air from coming from the outside coming in recontaminating your food and also from your food drying out because then the air is out right and so if you do that when you're canning and you don't follow a validated recipe you could be creating a scenario where Clostridium botulina would be just happy to come out of the spore I like to compare it with a seed so it's like a seed that is just there it's not doing anything is not harmful by itself, but at the right conditions, it's going to germinate. In this case, for canning, the right conditions are no oxygen, ambient temperature, so room temperature, and not enough acid. So most vegetables, some fruits, meats, seafood, they don't have enough natural acid present on them. So either the recipe is going to call for acid. As I mentioned earlier, lemon juice, vinegar, citric acid are some of the common ones we use. It's going to call for that, and you're going to acidify that food, or it's not going to call for acid, but you're going to 
process that jar in a pressure canner because the pressure canner is going to be able to drive that temperature really, really high up to 250 Fahrenheit and be able to destroy that spore. So we are not able to destroy the spore if present at boiling water temperatures. And that's why we have recipes and methodologies that either call for a boiling water canner when that food is naturally acidic or has been acidified because then we are controlling that pH to a lower level that we are not worried about Clostridium botulina anymore. We're worried about other things, potentially Salmonella, E. coli, spoilage organisms too that could spoil and ferment your food. So that's one of the methodologies we use for canning. And then on the pressure side of canning, so pressure canning, we have low acid foods and we want to extend the shelf life, but also want to make sure it's safe. By using a pressure canner, you are able to raise that temperature that you are able without pressure to 240, 250 Fahrenheit. And so a lot of people think that the pressure is what kills the spore and destroys the spore. And it's really not. The pressure is just helping the temperature rise to 240, 250 Fahrenheit. And then it's the temperature that is destroying that spore because the spore is really heat resistant. So you really need to make sure that one, you have good quality produce, you have validated recipes, you know which methodology you're using for specifically canning. You could be using boiling water canning, you could be using steam canning, or you could be using pressure canning. So those are the three approved methods that we have research-based information on that we, we recommend through the National Center. And we have even more resources through that extension publication that you mentioned and through a Newswire story we did on canning precautions that we will absolutely link in the show notes because we have seen even just a spike in press around canning. I think it yeah. was partially COVID that people kind of were at home and diving back into the sourdough breads and the canning right. and the different preservation okay. techniques, which is wonderful. I mean, I have so many memories as a kid. My mom was huge into food preservation, and I still have memories of falling asleep to the cans popping as they were vacuum sealing. So it's a super fond memory for me, but yeah. making sure we're doing that safely and using the resources that are out there. Definitely, yeah. And our website has many resources and recipes for free, so there is no need for you to find recipes out of social media that we are not sure have been validated or tested and just put your family and yourself at risk for something that is such a preventable thing, right? Because we have the recipes available and they're free access. They're on the website. We also have a book too that we offer through extension. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yeah. we will link all of that in the show notes. So it is awesome. right at the fingertips. I think this might be one of the most highly resourced episodes <laughs> yes. we've done of just all of these tools. I have a million more questions, so I could go on for hours here. Yep. Me too. But in the interest <laughs> of time, what have we missed, Carla? So I would say that for you that are listening, don't forget your local extension office and the local experts that you have in your communities or extension agents. And we have family and consumer science agents. We also have ag agents that are available to help you. So if you have questions, you're not sure where to find resources or you need a recommendation on something that you did at home, especially consumer food safety, reach out to your local extension office to those experts and they're going to be able to help you and guide you into the right direction. So it's easy to go to the internet right away and of course we have our websites through UJ Extension but also giving them a call or just going to your local extension office to connect with the person and ask for help is a good reminder and we are here to help we are here to serve we are happy to connect with you so don't feel shy we welcome questions and we welcome the concerns and needs that you have and we do our best to help you that's such an important reminder because now that I'm in this job I know that these these (laughs) things but I will admit until I started in this role, the amount of times I would do research and whether it was when I was in Iowa and it was Iowa State Extension or even in first moving to Georgia and UGA Extension, you don't realize how much those resources are, one, popping up in your Google searches. 
is, which is fantastic. Right. But also that you can go talk to your local extension agent. And I sound like a broken record, but we have a great tool on UGA <laughs> Extension site to just go to your county and it pops up who your local agents are. So we will yep. absolutely link that in the show notes in case our yeah. listeners don't know who their local extension agent is. Exactly. So, and also some classes that we offer. So home food preservation classes or classes for retail food safety for restaurants and things like that. It's on the calendar so you can easily see the New Year's class to you and you can sign up and you know be part of that as well so great resources out there well Carla we have covered a lot in a short period of time I know I have some new tools in my toolbox to keep myself and my family safer this holiday season and beyond so we are incredibly grateful for your time today thank you both so much I just enjoyed this conversation and connecting with you both thank you for the opportunity and for allowing me to come to your studio and record this thank you so much we had fun Thanks for listening to Cultivating Curiosity, a podcast produced by the UGA College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences. A special thanks to Mason McClintock for our music and sound effects. Find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts.